He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell on him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that exalt Christ, that teach us to put him as supreme and preeminent over our lives. And Father, Lord, I pray even through uh, my words, Lord, that Christ would be exalted through what you have written here through Paul. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Every person in this world comes to the realization that they have to come to resolution with God. Um, every person faces this dilemma, and even the atheist and the apathetic have chosen their stance deliberately um, to make some resolution in their mind with God. If you're Muslim, you have five pillars of faith that earn your place in heaven. For Hindu, you have karma. With each reincarnation, you accrue enough karma to better yourself in the next reincarnation. If you're atheist, you've flat out just chosen to resolve the matter of God by saying that he doesn't exist. Why does every human have a need to make resolution with God? What is it in every person's heart? Well, Paul, Paul says here three things that outline why in the human heart there is a desire to make resolution. In verse 21, he says that we are alienated, hostile in mind, and evil, doing evil deeds. Those three things, alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. So why do we need resolution? Firstly, we were, we were alienated. We were alienated. This word, and translated in other places in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and 4, say this word as excluded. You could say estranged. We were estranged from God's fold. You were not a member of his, alienated means we're not a member of his family. We're not a member of his true church. Uh, We are not his child. We have no inheritance. We have no eternal life. We have no heavenly citizenship. We're not taking after the image of Christ. We have no peace with God, and there's nothing to look forward to after we're dead. So it may be easy to look around us, and you see lots of people that you know Around the church, um, outside the church, and think, boy, there's a lot of people who are alienated. We have worldly, secular coworkers, we have family, and they're entrenched in various addictions and sins, and they're estranged from God. They're aliens. They don't know his goodness. They don't know his kindness. They don't know his moral standard, and they certainly have no concept of his saving grace. They're far, far from the fold of God. But let me suggest that while we look out and we see many people who are estranged and alienated from God and far from him, that there could be people within these four walls who are are just that, 
being alienated, as Paul describes, does not require you to be alienated socially or morally, or I'm sorry, socially or physically. If you're sitting here and you're not reconciled to God, as Paul says, you are alienated from him. You are utterly far from him. Don't equate moral and social affinity with God's people to nearness to him. There is no um, qualification there that Paul has here. Alienation is only qualified by those who aren't reconciled to him. It's a state of the heart, not a state of your body or, your, or where you're at. We may have close proximity to God's family, yet be totally far. Imagine there's a husband and wife who live in the same household, yet simultaneously they're worlds apart. They don't see eye to eye. So, so we could be with God's family. Does alienation resound with you? Do your affections align with his? Do you love what he loves and, and hate what he hates? Do you know what it's like to weep over your sin and rejoice in his salvation? Not reconciled to him means you're alienated and far from him. You are not near to God. Now, no, don't mistake, alienation doesn't any way mean that we're victimized by God. I think that could be easily mis- mis- mistook here. Does alienation mean that there's people climbing to get into heaven and God is rejecting them? Are we alienated before we're reconciled because God has thrown us out? If we read Romans 3, Romans, Paul, Paul in Romans 3 says, No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and altogether they become worthless. We're not victims of God's alienation. The truth is we haven't sought after God ourselves. God's not rejecting anybody. He says in John 6, Jesus says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Alienation does not mean being victimized by God. Alienation, you have two options. One is we rejected God or God rejected us. But it's clear from, from Jesus' words that Jesus is not reject, God is not rejecting us. We have rejected God. So, firstly, we need resolution with God because we're alienated. We're far from him. We're not close to him. And if the question of whether we're being alienated is being, we're victimized by God, the second point here that Paul makes can clarify that. He says we are hostile in mind. Firstly, we're alienated. Secondly, he says we are hostile in mind. The truth about alienation is that by nature, we don't desire peace with God. We wanted God dead, naturally, and to be far from him, as this word hostile in mind says. So what, is, what does this word mean? This Greek word, ekthros, is used by Jesus himself when he says, love your ekthros and pray for those who persecute you. He says, Jesus says, I love your hostile in mind to you, and pray for those who persecute you. As an enemy, um, Matthew, Matthew records um, some things that give us some parallelism to what it means to be hostile in mind. So this word ekthros, what would that mean? It would mean those, those, those who hate you, those who curse you. Matthew writes, pray for those who mistreat you. And in other translation, it includes to revile you and to persecute you. So in parallel to love your ekthros, we have do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And I might 
go on to say that that would include those who kill you and those who crucify you, if these are the words of Jesus. So hostile in mind to God means that you desire to destroy God. Take a look at your Facebook feed, watch the news, converse with your coworkers, and you don't need to look far to find plenty of people who are hostile in mind and find their memes on Facebook. Now, while appearing docile, the Bible doesn't qualify enemies of God um, as those who shake a literal fist at God, who post memes about atheism. Hostile in mind is only qualified here in this passage as those who aren't reconciled to him. You don't have to be vocal or public or belligerent or pugilistic to oppose God. The requirement of those who are hostile to God are those who aren't reconciled. So those who are hostile in mind toward God sit among these pews and share life here. Hostile in mind doesn't, is a state of the heart, not your fist. Does God anger you? Does he frustrate you? Are his ways constricting? Does life outside of his headship look liberating to you? Would you rather do away with the idea of his lordship? Hostile in mind is a state of the heart. So firstly, we need resolution with God because we're alienated, and secondly, because we are hostile in mind to him. Thirdly, Paul says, we, we did evil deeds. Those who aren't reconciled to God, they, viol- they violate God's perfect standard. This world is utterly distressing. We look out and ISIS is torturing prisoners, slaughtering Christians, kidnapping and enslaving children. Genocides since the 1900s have killed more than 50 million people. And abortions in the United States in the past 43 years have taken 60 million infant lives. But I suggest to you that we see this word in the Bible committing or engaging in evil deeds, but the same evil that exists in our world as we look out is the same evil that resides within us. Evil deeds, again, aren't qualified by those um, who we find disgusting or what we see in the news. Evil deeds are simply qualified by those who aren't reconciled. Jesus says that whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in her heart. Evil deeds aren't defined by what you perceive as evil. It's defined as those who aren't reconciled to God. Logically, the unreconciled are evil. Anger is murder. Lust is adultery. Sin makes us evil. And you may say, well, I'm a good person. I do not commit acts. These acts of, of sin that, that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, multi- murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. But doing evil deeds includes deeds of the heart. Again, doing, engaging in evil deeds is not what you perceive as evil, but as those who are unreconciled to God. Paul makes it clear that unreconciled is evil. They're one and the same thing. So our, our, reconcil- our reconciliation is this. God has reconciled those who are alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. 
Reconciliation is necessary because we're at war. We're at war with God. We're, we're, our corrupted selves somehow think that we're going to win against him. We can take him on. But we're at war with an all-powerful God, and we're destined to lose. We're destined to lose our lives. Yet when we see ourselves and we think about what God has written about who we once were before reconciliation, we think, God, I am I'm a horrible being. I am wretched. I'm despicable. I'm disgusting. I'm heinous, horrid, and corrupt. Why haven't you, how have you not smitten me yet? I'm a terrible person. Isaiah writes in his vision when he sees God, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am undone. That word is disintegrating. I'm coming apart in, in the presence of God because of my sin. And as we consider our offense to God, we ought to say, Save me, have mercy on me, spare me. God views our alienation, our hostility, and our evil deeds, and he pours out his wrath. And as his wrath approaches, it unmistakably falls just next to you. And the man next to you deliberately steps in front of you, fully receiving that wrath, killing him. That man is accused of your hostility, your evil deeds, and your alienation. He is whipped and his flesh is shredded to pieces. His body of flesh left to die a slow death of excruciating pain and asphyxiation. And he is condemned of your alienation, your hostility, and your evil deeds, as Paul writes here. As Isaiah said, this man was undone. He was ruined. For... Those who are reconciled, the wrath of God fell so close to you, but has landed on Jesus, his fleshly body through death, as Paul writes here. His fleshly body through death. He had a body of flesh for the purpose that he could die, so he could step in front of us and receive that wrath as one of our kinsmen. Reconciliation meant satisfying God's wrath. Reconciliation meant satisfying God's wrath. The purpose of our reconciliation is that it fixes everything about us. We were alienated, and he draws us near. We were hostile in mind, and he gives us affections for him. We were doing evil deeds, and he has made us holy. He died so we could be holy, blameless, and above reproach, so we could be without sin. So reconciliation is not just about forgiveness of our evil deeds, but eliminating our bent to evil deeds. It eliminates our hostility and eliminates our, our alienation. Now, what really makes this reconciliation, this reconciliation amazing is the context. Here, Jesus, who is supreme over all creation, is the one who is reconciling us. And perhaps this is Jesus' greatest work in all that he has ever done. What's amazing is the climax of Christ's position. So if you'd read in, in, in verse 15 to verse 20, we'll see the lead-up that leads up, leads up to this reconciliation. Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. God sets Jesus as who is preeminent over everything to be the one who reconciles us. And as Paul gets excited over all these ways that he is preeminent, he finally concludes that this preeminent Christ is that who is our reconciler to God. He says he is the preeminent representative of God, verse 15b. He is, the preeminent, he is preeminent over creation, verse 16. He is preeminent in preservation, 17. He is preeminent over the church, verse 18a. He is preeminent over time, 18b. He is preeminent in the resurrection, 18c. And is preeminent in our reconciliation, verse 19 and 20. God set, Jesus as supre- God set Jesus as supreme over his identity. God set Jesus as supreme over the universe. God set Jesus as supreme over his people. And God set Jesus as supreme over his plan of salvation. And for this, Jesus is praised in heaven. The first words that come out of the mouths of celestial beings in heaven, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the angels, the first words that come out of their mouth are praise for what he has done to reconcile us. This is Jesus' greatest work ever, his reconciliation of sinners to himself. Revelation 5, 9 says, Worthy are you, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Imagine these death-deserving creatures who are alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. He is reconciled by the willing receipt of the Father's wrath unto himself, dying on our behalf in a fleshly body so that we could be without sin. Isn't that what Paul says here in, in verses 21 and 22? Paul points us to more than reconciliation with God. He points us to the fact that the preeminent and supreme Jesus reconciles us to God. And he who is supreme over the universe has been set supreme over our reconciliation.